So we're going to spend some time in the Gospel of John this morning. Our text is uh, John chapter 2, 1 through 12. If you turn there with me this morning, uh, we're going to ask the the Lord not just to inform our intellect, not just to give us some more knowledge, but that his living word, the the word of God, would, would enter our hearts, enter our souls, and transform us, change us, give us a, a greater love for Christ, a greater passion for him, and, and insight in how to live our life in such a way that glorifies God and that we can experience his joy in our life. And so let's pray together this morning, even you at home, let's pray together as we begin looking at God's word out of John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. Oh, Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for uh, those that are gathered here at Stedman Street, those that are gathered around uh, the Merrimack Valley this morning, uh, worshiping you from home. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the text with me. We're in John chapter 2. We're looking at verse 1. John writes this, On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The third day, John writes from a perspective that's quite different than the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called the Synoptic Gospels because they tend to look at the ministry of Jesus through that same lens, through the same set of eyes. But John comes, and he's really quite different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When John comes, he comes with a lifetime of reflection, a lifetime of the Holy Spirit doing what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. In other words, when Jesus was walking and ministering, he was limited in in the sense that he could minister to his disciples and his disciples would minister to people and the 12 would minister and he and he called the 70, and the 70 went out. But when Jesus rose and went to the Father at his ascension, he sent who? He sent the parakletos. He sent the one that would come alongside. He sent the advocate. He sent that one that would indwell the life of the believer. And we're going to get to John chapter 4 about those living waters that would come out of us and, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, John had a lifetime, probably somewhere around 40, 50 years, as John was written around 90, 100 AD, a lifetime of the Holy Spirit speaking to him, guiding him, and living, and he was able to connect the dots in such a way that are, are, are rich. For example, we are looking at the first miracle and first sign, and there's Uh, Six more to come. And John lays out miracle after miracle after miracle as a sign. And what does a sign mean? It points to what? Something of a greater truth. Something that we don't want to miss. Sometimes when you're going down the road, when I was first going to New York, I'd take a left rather than a right, and I'd find myself in the middle middle of the city rather than going across the Tappan Zee Bridge. So you've got to pay attention to what? signposts because they provide direction and lead you in the right path. And John lays out in the first half, 
John chapter 1, verse through 11, he lays out seven signs with the, with the, with the high watermark being the seventh sign in chapter 11 of John, which is raising Lazarus from the death. From death, from death. And at that point, the Jews pivot, the religious leaders pivot, and they determine in their heart to bring Christ to, to his death, to his crucifixion. There's seven I am's in the, in the book of John, the Gospel of John. The last one being Thomas's confession. And so you see these great kind of structural things in the Gospel of John, and we come to the first sign. One thing not to miss is this first phrase in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, do you think it's, it's a miss? Do you think it's by accident that John mentions the third day? Do you, think he, it, do you think he missed something or he wants to call something to our attention? Well, it took two days to travel to the wedding feast, and on the third day they arrived, but there's more than that. On the third day, what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. And John's able, with his age and his experience of walking with the Lord and the Holy Spirit speaking, and John looking at the ministry of Jesus, John is able to connect dots at such a deep level. We've been talking for the last two months. We've always included in the teaching one of the minor prophets. Not that they're minor in stature. They're just smaller in length. There's 12 of them, and there's four major prophets. But when we look at and consider on the third day, we have to let Hosea's words in chapter 6, 1 through 2, ring in our ears as a way of, of the promises that we have in the Old Testament, as the way of prophetic telescoping, of looking into the future of the great works that God would do. Look at Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. See, John the Apostle is able to see God's great handiwork at play of bringing the fulfillment of prophetic word, bringing the fulfillment that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Lord. Take a look at Hosea with me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he'll do what? He'll raise us up. On the third day, we see in John chapter 2, verse 1, meaning that resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so John has this depth of insight. Even when we look at chapter 1, we just finished chapter 1, and you see so many names of Jesus, anywhere between 7 and 16 names of Jesus when we look at chapter 1. He's the Word. He's God. He's life. He's light. He's the only Son. He's Jesus Christ. He's the only God. He's the, he is the Lamb of God. He's the King of Israel. Over and over again, John brings us a depth of insight that is meant to do this, to transform us, to bring us to have an encounter with Jesus Christ to understand so that we may believe, which is what happened to the disciples. Take a look at, on the third day, we're back in John chapter 1. On the third, John chapter 2, I'm sorry. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And what we see here is the, uh, a central role that Mary plays 
And it begs the question, why? Why does Mary have this central role? Well, we know from Mark chapter 1 that Jesus had, he had what? He had stepbrothers and stepsisters. And I think the inclination or the, uh, what's implied in the text here is that there was a wedding going on. It was a small village. And perhaps one of Jesus' stepbrothers, one of his stepsisters was being married, and Jesus' mother was there, and she was, in a sense, supervising what was going on. And the whole crowd, the whole crowd from the small villages there, and it sets the stage for Jesus' first sign, his first miracle. Verse 2 says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, quote, they have no wine. Well, this is, a, this is a catastrophe in this culture in this day. Because not to provide for your guests would be a pock, would be a mark, would, would be a sign in the negative on that bride and groom. It would be a, a negative for the family. It would follow them forever. Oh, remember the wedding. You might be able to note that in your mind. Think about the weddings you've been to. Think about the disastrous weddings you've been to. You never forget them. Never forget the, when something went wrong at a, at a wedding. Uh, you know, I've been to quite a few of them. I've officiated a few of them. And, and there's, there's no worse thing that can happen at a wedding than when you see the bride start to swoon like this. And you got to quickly, as the officiant, you got to get a chair underneath there. Because if that bride goes down, they will never, <laughs> it's happened, they will never forget that wedding. And this is the case here. If the food ran out, if the wine ran out, man, what a disaster. And so we come back to the text. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. What's going on here? Well, Jesus' uh, Jesus's mother knew about him. And there's this understanding from the angelic visitation. There's an understanding because of Mary's uh, understanding of the Old Testament that this is the Messiah. This is the powerful one. This is the creator of all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. He's the creator of all things. Colossians, he's the sustainer of all things. He can move heaven and earth. He created Genesis 1, Genesis 2. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. So what's a little, what's a little problem like this when my son is the Messiah? I'm going to suggest to him that he start operating in that anointing that's on his life. But Jesus responds to his mother and not in scorn, but in kindness. He says to Mary, his mother, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And what Jesus is pointing to, and John gives us this little insight, uh, not so much little, but a major insight that Jesus would be glorified at a particular hour, at a particular place. That particular hour that particular place was Calvary. At that place, when he gave his life out of the Father's love to provide a propitiation for our sins, Jesus would be glorified. He would receive honor. 
he would receive praise from his father. He would hang on that cross. He would be buried after, he would die on that cross. He would be buried. And on the third day, he would do what? He'd be raised from the dead. And so that hour had not yet come. And so Jesus says to his mother, Mother, my, my, my hour has not yet come. And look what Mary says. You know, there's some folks that believe that Mary is a, a co-redeemer. But Mary doesn't take that role at all. Mary gives us some of the best advice that we could have in all of the Bible. She says this. She says, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That's great advice as we live life, as we read God's word. Just do. Just do it. When you don't feel like it, when circumstances are off, just do what Jesus tells you to do, and he'll bring you to the place where you can be ministered to, where you can receive his peace, his joy. Take a look at the text. We continue with the narrative. Verse 5. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Why the significance? When you look at the miracles Jesus performed in the first half of John, there's seven. This is the first. Raising Lazarus from the dead is the seventh. When you look at these miracles, they're all designed as a sign, something significant, something telling us about the ministry of Jesus and how we relate to that ministry. In the Old Testament, they all had, in the Old Testament, there were rules and regulations about purification and washing and water. And those purification, uh, say, rules and regula regulations pointed to something. They pointed to something that God wanted to do on the inside. Those purification and washing hands and and washing clothes and purifying oneself before coming into the temple were, were pointing, they were signposts to what the Lord wanted to do by sending the Holy Spirit. It had to point to the transformation from death into life that would happen through the coming of the Holy Spirit, through the suffering of the Son, His death, burial, and resurrection, and sending the Holy Spirit into our lives to cleanse us from the inside out. And so the Jews were all caught up with what's on the outside. But all these things pointed to one enduring and everlasting truth, is that God was going to create prophet Jeremiah, prophet Ezekiel, that God was going to do a new work, a new covenant. He was going to put his spirit in, our, in the lives of believers, and he was going to change our heart from the inside out. And so this sign that's going to take place, Jesus says to the, to his, to the uh, servants in verse 7, G Jesus said to them, to the servants, he says this, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast, the head waiter, called the bridegroom. And he goes, this is amazing. This is the best stuff I've ever tasted. Now, some of my colleagues, they have a, 
they have a difficult time with this. They say, oh, no, 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 this can't be wine. This is going to be Welch's grape juice. Uh, and I'll, I'll just submit to you that, you know, this guy, this is a Palestine, Palestinian culture. Do you think they know the difference between Welch's grape juice and, real, and the good stuff? <laughs> I'd submit to you they know. And then some of my other colleagues go, oh, no, 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 this could never happen. You know, they dilute it with water. It's like one to three, and instead of 120 gallons of water, it's, it's 1,000 gallons of wine. <laughs> you know what? I believe in a grammatical, historical interpretation of the text. And my text says this. Jesus did a miracle as a sign. And the sign's this. The sign's this. Is that the creator of the universe took water and made it into wine. And the testimony was, wow, this is great stuff. <laughs> now, some of you are going to disagree with me. That's okay. Just send, don't send me a nasty email. Send me a nice email. Give me, give me your facts, and, and we'll take it from there. Back to the text, okay? Uh, we come to, and the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifest his glory, and the disciples believed in him. This sign, as we've already said, points to a deeper truth. If you're following along in my notes, you'll know that, that John gives us three things to take into consideration when we look at this sign. The first sign, the first thing that John gives us is a sign that gives us understanding of how the ministry of Jesus would took place as men are called to use this. Men are called to use the ordinary means of grace to accomplish the supernatural purposes of God. When you look at the text, Jesus tells the men what to do, the servants. He says, I want you to use your ordinary strength to go get these big jars of water I want you to carry them over here, and we see Jesus just say, now take a, take a ladle and scoop some, what they thought might have been water, scoop it out and bring it to the head waiter, and let's see what the head waiter has to say. Take note of the text. There's no great prayer, is there? There's no great long use of glossolalia, is there? There's no say, magical, uh, you know, whatever going on. There's no laying on of hands on the water or sticking in the finger and stirring it up, you know. There's nothing other than the creator of the universe using ordinary means to bring about a supernatural miracle, a sign that points to the inner work of the Spirit and the transformational work of God. What are the implications for us? The implication is this. As we use the ordinary means of grace that God's provided, like preaching the gospel, it's like foolishness, isn't it? Like we're, gonna pre we're preaching the gospel here, and you know, somewhere God is saving a heart. Somewhere God is healing a heart. Somewhere through the proclamation of the gospel, a person is encouraged. Somewhere, as the gospel is proclaimed, 
Someone's being healed. Someone's being set free. Someone's being delivered. Someone's receiving peace. Someone's receiving comfort. Someone's receiving joy in their life. Someone is receiving hope. And as we do the ordinary means of grace, proclaiming the gospel, God does what only God can do, which is the transformation of the heart. We should walk away from this text encouraged that in the foolishness of preaching the gospel, Christ will do a supernatural transformational work in our hearts and in the life of our hearers. And so we should be encouraged, as Isaiah says, as Paul says, blessed are the feet, right? Blessed are the feet that proclaim good news. God gives us ordinary means. He lays it out for us. What about prayer? As we pray, God does a supernatural work in our hearts. As we pray according to God's will, in the name of Jesus, God takes our agenda and he shifts it to his agenda. He births in our heart the weight of wanting to please him. He births in our heart a desire to walk in his ways. No man can do that. No man can transform a heart. Only the work, the inner work, the transforming power of a God who can turn water into wine can transform the heart of a man or a woman or a child. The second implication is this, is that it manifested this act, this miracle, this sign, manifested Jesus' God's glory. John tells us what the glory of Jesus is, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as on the only form of the Son, full of grace and full of truth. God's glory was manifested in Jesus in two ways. We saw his glory. It was what? It was full of truth. The truth is, is Jesus is the creator of the universe. He holds all things together by the power of his word. Ex nihilo. He says, let there be light, and there's light. Let there be a new heart in that broken spirit of a man or woman. Let there be a new birth, as he's going to say to Nicodemus. And out of nothing, God works, and he shows the glory of his truth, and he shows the glory of his grace, the unmerited favor that he bestows on those that repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is that grace. But you know, let's not get too fanciful. Let's not get too theological. Let's get real practical. Look at the grace of God here. Look at the grace manifested to Mother Mary, Jesus' mother. Look at the grace, the kindness, the compassion that Jesus bestows upon this little village. They had run out of wine. Can you imagine the face of the groom and the bride? Can you imagine the, the countenance of the parents? Oh, no, we are forever mocked by not providing for our guests. And out of the kindness, out of the compassion of God, he does something that for him is, it's what? It's just creating, just creating some wine out of water. It's no big deal. 
Yet look at the grace and the kindness of God in bringing joy to the people at this wedding. You know, many of us in our culture in New England, we grew up in a religious system that, you know, we're more, I'm just speaking for myself, I don't want to put it on anybody else, but we're more motivated by guilt than joy. And I want to say this about life. I've found more grace in the last three or four years than I, I ever thought I could find. More compassion in the practical things of life. More of a heart that God has for me that I could walk in than I ever thought I would experience in my whole life. And there it is. The grace of God. Yeah, it's supernatural, but it's practical too. That God wants his favor, his grace. He wants his joy to rest upon our lives so that we would live life out of a place of acceptance, out of a place of joy, rather than a place motivated by guilt and shame. Last thing we can see is that the third aspect is the disciples believed in him. And certainly we know from the text that they had left all, and they were following after Jesus. But you know, truth and grace, when deeply experienced, brings a new level of belief and trust and courage in God. I don't know about you, but I need that trust and courage. I need that truth and grace to permeate every aspect of my life. So in the midst of circumstances that aren't too good, I can experience his presence and his joy. The last thing we can see from our text is verse 12. And after this, Jesus went down and using the ordinary means of koinonia, sat down with his mother, sat down with his disciples, and simply broke bread and shared his life with them. Jesus uses ordinary means to transform our heart and lives. The text speaks to a sign. Let us not miss it. Let us understand that it's through ordinary means that God often does the most supernatural things in our life. That through following after him, that we would experience true transformation that brings about a heart that's full of joy, and we become the same as our elder brother Jesus, dispensers to other people's hearts and other people's life, dispensers of truth and grace, bringing glory to God and experiencing his presence and his joy in our life.